is a light pleasing to God. And at the beginning of chapter 4, Paul sets out and urges the church to live lives that are pleasing to God. And he then goes on to unpack what a life pleasing to God means. So we've already heard from Neil about the context that Jesus is coming again and therefore we're called to be holy. And then Ron brought this word about the, the army of God being on the move, that the lion of Judah roaring. And then last week, Neil talks, uh, John talks about keeping awake because the day of the Lord is coming. So this passage is set in the context of living a life pleasing to God and how we do that. And if you like, this passage is the application of everything that has gone before. So Paul has been talking about the life we're supposed to be leading in the light of Jesus coming again, how should you live? And then this, if you like, is his conclusion. This is his conclusion slide, and he's given us some bullet points on what to do. And as a preacher, the passage is really challenging. Because as preachers, we have to gain this we love to be able to ferret away at the Greek words and come up with some obscure meaning and some insight that comes from studying the original language. Or there's maybe some strange historical context that we have to unpack and we have to talk about what things were like in the temple. Or it may be that there's a really complex theological argument that Paul's taking us on and therefore we need to delve into the text. But unfortunately, Neil has given me what I call a non-seal passage. Because it doesn't, you just need to do what it says on the tin. So if you like, he's given us this bullet point point list of 15 things that we need to do. Uh, 15 instructions. Now, I don't know about you, but if you sent me to uh, shops to buy four things for that shopping list, I'd come back with two things that you wanted and a whole bunch of other stuff. So giving me a list of 15 things to remember is going to be really tricky. So what I want to do uh, this morning is to try and brigade it together into three uh, headlines of what Paul is instructing us to do. And so the first is that Paul is urging us to have a right attitude uh, uh, to our leaders. And so we read in verse 12 that we are to respect and to esteem very highly in love. And that, in many ways, seems countercultural. Um, I've spent most of my career working in government or in politics. And I think it's fair to say that you always have to wonder what the motives that some people have. And it's very easy to get a, a cynicism about the motives of people and what they're doing and why they're doing it. And it's very easy for that environment to influence, influence us within the church. Some of our models of leadership out in society are great. And therefore that can creep into the church. And, and Paul's challenge here is rather than having cynicism and a, a questioning of the motives of those who are in leadership, we are called to respect them and to esteem them very highly in love. And what I find interesting about this passage is what we are to respect. And in verse 12 it says, we're to respect those who labor. So those who serve you, we're asked to respect them because they are owed you. And the context here, I can actually get rid of this. The context here is not one of hierarchy, but actually of covering. So it's like an umbrella. Those of you that so are leaders who are over us, protecting us, protecting the congregation. And the third thing he says is to those who admonish you. 
Now that's a bit strange and monish. That's if that would be on my shopping list of what I particularly value. Um, but I know that speaking the truth is actually something we need to hear from time to time. And that's something that our leaders are called to do. And I remember when I was uh, first started work, I was involved in a church plant in Manchester. And I got invited by the regional leader to drive him over to a meeting in Sheffield. So I thought, wow, I know why. Big church meeting in Sheffield. I'm like, oh, yeah. Going up to Snake Pass, we've been to the Northwest, we've been over Snake Pass. Yeah. It's not a good thing to do in a one seat car or a hundred seat car, fifty seat car. It was kind of struggling on the hill a little bit. And so we're struggling on the hill, it's raining, it's dark, and I'm consciously squirming in front of me. Like, not about my driving days, but. I'm actually just kind of squirming as if he wanted to say something. Say, So he, he said it, uh, and he spoke some truth and love to me. That was, I still remember it now, uh, 25 years later. And it had a real impact. And it had a real impact partly because what he said was true, but partly I knew how much it cost him to say that. Because as someone who was quite shy, and he was quite shy, he took the risk of saying truth to me that I might not want to hear and that the relationship I had with him could be broken. Um, but I honour that because what he said just stuck with him all the way through. And so I think it's interesting for me that Paul Sophia says, respect your leaders, not for their gifting, not for their anointing, not for the great power, and we live in a, an environment that loves the great man on the stage with the power and the anointing. But actually, of course, respect our leaders because they grant, because they serve us, they protect us, and they speak the truth to us in love so that we can become more like Jesus. So I think there's just a challenge there that we are called to have the right attitude to our leaders, to esteem and to honour them in love. So that's the first thing. We are called to have the right attitude to leaders. The second point is we are called to have the right attitudes to each other. So we go on to read in verses uh, 14 and 15, Paul actually here gives five instructions to the church. And it's important to put this in the context of, we didn't read it out, but in verse 27, Paul says to the recipients of the letter, I put you under oath, so really strong, I put you under oath before God to have this letter read to all the brothers. So this instruction was not just for the leaders, it was for the whole church. And Paul instructs the whole church then to admonish the idle, to encourage the faint-hearted, to help the weak, to be patient with them all, and to do good uh, to one another and to everyone. And that instruction is for the whole church, not just the leaders, not just the stalwarts of the church congregation who've been there since the year gone, but actually it's the whole church. And I think there's sometimes a risk that we think it's someone else's job to do this. And it's something I found in church plants that actually there's a real risk when you start a new church, as soon as you, when you come to the church, everyone wants it. 
So everyone's there at the church, on your site and stuff. So you're there putting the chair down, you're doing the coffee, everyone's fucking in to do something. And as soon as you employ the first full time member of staff for that church, suddenly, and all of a sudden, it changes the dynamics. And I think there is a risk that we see things as someone else's problem. Someone else needs to do that. And I get caught up. I love those discussions where you start talking about God's purpose for the church and the vision for the church and the mission for the church. And you start saying, the church should. The church should. And actually, I'm convinced that it, it really should be by should. And so Neil talked about uh, the vision of the government. That we want to be a place where those in distress, in debt, or discouraged can find hope and healing. And I'm 100% like that. And when I first heard that, I thought, oh, that's what I'm And then I said, well, ha ha ha, I am in a bit. It's like, like you know, I thought it was a place where those in debt, those discouraged, those in distress, are like, finally given hope. And that starts to bring in a lot. Me. And I think it's one of the challenges that we face around church post-COVID. John talks about the hyper-individualism that we see in society. I think it's a real challenge post-COVID that we see a consumer attitude towards church. Don't sit down on your Sunday morning, you're having your coffee, and you say to your, your family, oh, well, what, should we, what should we do today? Well, who, should we, who should we listen to today? Anyone fancy to get a bit of jobs? How about Tim Keller? Oh, that's a good one. That's a good one. Well, how about Matt Chow? And you get this whole kind of consumerist attitude that we are buying something for our half an hour or half an hour evening. And the challenge to us as church is not to consume, but to contribute. And so God calls us to be active contributors, not passive passengers. So we're called to have the right attitude to each other, to actually look out for each other and to be sure of each other. And Dave Candy wants to do a group of life groups. His life groups is where that happens. And if anyone is looking for a life group, we have a fantastic one with very well <laughs> So, we are called to have the right attitude to each other. And then we're called, the third thing is we're called to have a right attitude to God. So in verses 16 to 18, we read that Paul says, uh, Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances. And what we're struck with there is the constancy of this. It's, it's about praying always in all circumstances without ceasing. And I find that really challenging because I know my own prayer life is a little bit in this. It's kind of when I need something, when I'm on a spiritual high, I'm there. But other times, just the busyness of life comes in and pushes things to the side, pushes my devotional life to the side. And Paul here is saying, actually, there needs to be a consistency in our relationship with God, and in all circumstances, we are praying. And then we come on to verse 19. And verse 19 says, Do not quench the Spirit. Or if you like, quench is a bit of an old word. Uh, quench, you think of quenching your thirst, you don't think of quenching your fire, but the context here is of fire. So actually, the verse says, the spirit do not extinguish 
spirit do not distinguish. So God is calling us not to distinguish the Holy Spirit. And when I was preparing, this verse troubled me a little bit. Because I was thinking, how can you extinguish the Holy Father in God? That's what I was saying. How can you extinguish the Spirit? And when I was looking at the context of the passage, as I said at the beginning, the context is the day of the Lord that is coming. And so when you talk about the Holy Spirit in the context of the day of the Lord coming, for me it takes me back to Joel chapter 2. And in Joel chapter 2 it says, In the day of the Lord it shall come to pass that I will pour out my Spirit on all flesh, and your sons and daughters shall prophesy, your old men shall dream dreams, I say it's really depressing that I've moved from the prophesy and visions category into the dreaming dreams. I think it came along with the reading glasses, but there you go. Uh, your old men shall dream dreams and your young men shall see visions. I think what Paul is saying here, why don't you extinguish the Holy Spirit? Because when God comes again, when Jesus comes again, there is a foul way of the Holy Spirit to go. And so we should expect, and we say Thessalonians, I'm just been telling you, Jesus is coming again. The day of the Lord is near. And as the day of the Lord comes near, you should expect that there will be this foul wave of the Holy Spirit that is going forth ahead of his coming to prepare his church to see people saved and added, to see his church beautiful, ready for the, for the bridegroom to come. And so that's why I think this passage here talks about don't extinguish the Holy Spirit because we should expect, as time gets shorter and shorter, that we should see more and more of the Holy Spirit breaking out amongst us. And I have to say, I have a whole dissatisfaction with the Holy Spirit and where we see the Spirit in this land. I want to see more. I want to see more. You know, I hear stories of 1905, I hear stories of 1930 in the lower stock, I hear the Hecate Revival. I want a bit of this, and I think for some of us, we went through the Toronto blessing and we were left afterwards going, Is that it? I want more. I want more. I want to see this bow lane, not just a little, I want to see the bow lane as God comes again. And so the challenge to us is not to extinguish the Holy Spirit amongst us. I think there's two ways that you can extinguish the Holy Spirit. In the context here, I think Paul is particularly talking about. Uh, not allowing space for prophecy and spiritual gifts within the life of the church. I know for us here at Jubilee, we welcome spiritual gifts. We want to see more of spiritual gifts and prophecy and tongues, words of knowledge and healing amongst us. But I think the other way that we can extinguish the Holy Spirit is through neglect. And uh, one of the commentators I was reading, Dr. Donald Spence, who wrote in uh, 1909, just after the Welsh Revival, he wrote, the fire may be quenched by neglecting it quite as much as by casting water upon it. This is the tendency of neglect. And so the third call on us is to have a consistency in our walk with Jesus. It is to have the right attitude to God in our lives. But more than that, is to not neglect the Holy Spirit and to actively seek Him out and His presence in our lives. And I know for myself, I get rusty. I get rusty. My spiritual antenna, I'm not used to it, get rusty. And I think over the period of COVID, when people have been strange, have you got it rusty? Maybe you in your walk with God, have you got that vibrancy of the Holy Spirit speaking to you through His Word, speaking to you through 
years we come together, we don't have that vibrancy of the Holy Spirit, that expectation of living from God. But I think the challenge on us, if we're to have a, a live a life that is pleasing to God, is to have a right attitude to God and to expect Him to speak to us. We've been singing of your presence among us. And Lord, we want more. We want to see more of the Holy Spirit. We want to see people saved. We want to see people healed. We want to see people set free. We want to see the name of Jesus lifted high. We want to be a church that brings honour to the glory and the name of Jesus. And so we pray, Lord Jesus, give us that hunger and thirst for your spirit. Lord, that it wouldn't just be part of the community that we say, but it would be our day-to-day -day experience, that we would experience your Holy Spirit amongst us. Lord, soften my heart, soften the heart of all of us, to be sensitive to your Spirit's urge, to hear your voice.